Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, March 23rd, 2016. We'll be doing our light episode today as we continue to walk our way through the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Good stuff. Completely obliterating that whole idea of dream destiny thingies. Which, by the way, I'm doing some research and finding that whole dream destiny doctrine. Oh, man, it just feeds narcissism like you wouldn't believe. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open our Bibles and do the comparative work to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose uh, small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says, or if they're just teaching for shameful gain things that they ought not to teach, generally twisting God's Word and completely mangling the message, and not actually making disciples of Jesus Christ, but making disciples of themselves, because they're not teaching the same teaching that Jesus teaches. Yeah, it's kind of That's kind of the idea. So uh, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. We're up to the next installment. He's in... Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, I think, start. Uh, no, it's not 5, chapter 7, starting at verse 5. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Okay, so Ecclesiastes, we spent, I think, almost an entire class on the first four verses of chapter 7, which is great, it's worth it. It's at the heart of this book. So we'll read those for context. And then in the verses that we're going to cover today, in the topics and sections we'll cover today, you'll see why so many uh, commentaries say that Ecclesiastes, it's hard to tell if there's any order. It doesn't seem to be. It just seems to sort of be one thing after another after another. Sort of a rambling, somewhat intertwined uh, series of oracles or statements. So we'll look at that and we'll see that. And again, I've suggested to you that that's... I think that that's, there's a good possibility that that was intentional. When you look at the overarching structure and organization of Ecclesiastes, you have this great big cycle from the very first verse uh, to uh, chapter 3. There's this cycle, and remember, that's one of the big points of Ecclesiastes, that they're all cycles, it's all nothing. 
It's just the end is one step away from the beginning, which is one step away from the middle, which is one step away from the end, which is another beginning, and uh, it's a futile cycle. Okay, And then from that break in chapter 3 forward, as you've seen so far, and as we're going to go into all the more today, you'll see just a loose, strung-together series of events that don't really make sense. You know, just one thing after another, after another, after another, sort of like life itself. And so I think it's intentional that he strings together uh, chaos and disorder. That's how we experience life. And then by the very end, you'll see, uh, as, I've, as I mentioned, this is really a, a literary masterwork, masterpiece, you'll see that he ties it back into the concept of cycles, thus making Ecclesiastes itself a great big cycle. So when we get to the end, we'll begin again. That's the point. So, um, at least that gives us by way of preface an introduction to why some of these verses might seem kind of jammed together and strangely juxtaposed. So, chapter 1, or chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. That's fine, we get that. And the day of death, and the day of death, than the day of birth. Remember, we spent a lot of time talking about that, that strange idea that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this, namely death, is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Whereas by superficial laughter the heart is not healed, but is made more depressed. (laughs) And we talk too about what it means for Jesus uh, to be a man of sorrow, described as such in the scriptures, as opposed to a man of laughter. Right? So, also then, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Those were the verses we covered last week. Are there any thoughts or questions uh, rattling around out there that you want to address before we move on? Okay, let's go into the next verse then. This is the new material. Chapter 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. How many of you like to be rebuked? How many of you look forward to uh, Monday morning when your boss says, you know, can I speak with you for a moment? And you walk in and then he shuts the door behind you, never a good sign. It's not so bad if the door stays open, but when that door shuts, okay, and uh, and then what comes is critique, criticism. Do you look forward to that, honestly? No. Who does? <laughs> no one. It's terrible. It's uncomfortable. Uh, no one likes to be rebuked. Rather, we would like to have a good time, you know? And here Solomon continues a very counterintuitive strain. 
And that's what we've seen so far. I mean, even, even look at verse 4, how counterintuitive. The wise are in the house of mourning. The fools are in the house of mirth. It's counterintuitive. You think the wise people of this world would be happy and be telling us how to be happy. Those are the fools, Solomon says. The wise are in the house of mourning. It's very counterintuitive. Then in verse 5, the same counterintuitive strain is here. Whereas to us, we would think that rebuke would be bad. Solomon says it's good. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now why? Why would you say the rebuke of the wise is better than the song of the fools? Right. Yeah, when you get rebuked by someone who's wise, you may learn. You may uh, be corrected. You may yourself become that much more wise. It's a humbling thing, but as you're being humbled, you're being blessed by that. Whereas the song of the fools is more like, hey, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow. You know, yeah, I am. You don't learn anything. You don't change. In fact, you probably get puffed up and proud and that goes before the fall. All right. So here is a statement of wisdom from Solomon. Any thoughts or questions you have on that? Okay, there's one in the back. Do we want to get the microphone out? Thanks, David. Um, so the problem I have with this is that there's a... Uh, a dis or or a um, what do I want to call it? an authentication that the person needs to be wise because we get rebuked all the time too by people who are not wise mm-hmm. and it kind of colors when we get the wise you know and it's like how do we tell ahead of time you know it, 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 it's like and and even still I'm so conditioned to that I guess I get rebuked a lot um, <laughs> that. Um, you know, I always take even the foolish seriously. I start to think about, well, what's my part in this? What's my part in this? And then I have to sit back and go, wait a minute. This person's a fool, you know, and I shouldn't be listening to them. They're not rebuking me. They're not, the, you know, they're not, they're under the sun, yeah. S-U-N instead of S-O-N. Yeah. I think the key is the substance of what's being said. That's the key. Because I don't think that Solomon's saying only listen to the rebuke of the wise. You know, um, Balaam, the false prophet, is rebuked by a donkey. Yeah. But the donkey speaks the truth. From the mouth of the donkey comes the word of the Lord. And so he's rebuked by the ultimate fool, you know, a donkey for crying out loud. Okay. And yet that rebuke is, uh, is good for him. So I think, I think, and the point that I'm trying to make is in receiving a rebuke, whether it's from someone who's wise or from someone who's foolish, if the rebuke is true, if there's substance to it, then take it to heart. That's the key. Yeah, that's the part of judgment. You know, well, what part of this is really me and what part isn't me? You right. Know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's, and that's difficult. You know, that's difficult. It can lead, it can lead you into <laughs> confession before God, right? You know, where you confess and you say, well, I've received this rebuke and these things I see are true and help me to see what I don't see. Um, just, just to confuse it a little bit more, um, 
lot of times, at least in my life, people that others perceive as fools say things that are and and share things that are really wise. And so, learning to discern which is which is is a yeah yeah is a, a feat in itself, I guess. Right. Um, you know, when you think of the. Uh, the story of the emperor who has no clothes, it's all the wise counselors who, you know, they've been sabotaged, of course, because the swindlers who have sold the king the invisible clothes have said uh, that uh, they're visible only to those who are worthy of their station and intelligent. You know, so all the, all the adults don't want to say you're naked because that would prove that they're unintelligent, you know. So in this way, all the, and, and unworthy of their stations, ought to be demoted by the king. So all the wise are thus silenced, and it's the fool, the child, who points out the obvious, which is true. Yeah. So again, I think, I think that we have to take uh, the merit of what's being said. That, that, that's the key. Um, but again... In the in the train of, of Solomon's thinking, one more you, question. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> Who gave him a mic? <laughs> I just walked in. <laughs> in my business, uh, which was construction, you learn from the fools as well as the wise. Yeah, well that's true. You learn what not to do. That's yeah. Right. That's right. And most of the inspectors are pretty wise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, learning learning is learning. And I don't think I don't think Solomon would disagree with any of this. I again I think his point is the counterintuitive point that it's better to receive rebuke than praise. But That's what's counterintuitive. Again though, with it's see that's that fall into that sin. I've really been thinking about original sin. You know what is that? What what really is that? What changed in us? And it's that not knowing. You know, I mean, I can listen to a fool and they can be pretty convincing, and it's really foolish in God's world. And then I can listen to wise and they're pretty convincing too, and yet it's foolish in God's. And it's. What, what do I really listen to? Which, again, I know I'm sure Ecclesiastes is going to say, well, that's why we, we, it's only S-O-N that will help us discern and tell and knowing God's word more and more and more and more. But it's so hard out there in the, in the ditches fighting, you know, trying to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, what comes to mind also is where Paul says, I, I do not even judge myself. But I am not thereby exonerated. What on earth is he saying? Well, at least in part, if we analyze what he's saying, in light of original sin, when we judge ourselves, how accurate is that judge? (laughs) You know, it's like when I got in trouble as a little kid. And I was like, don't worry, Mom, I'll punish myself. (laughs) A little biased. So also, having a fallen creature be his or her own judge. A little biased. And even armed with God's Word. Well, no one's ever been known to twist God's Word. 
least of all a fallen human being. So even with God's own word, you know, uh, if I were to examine myself in light of the Ten Commandments, as I should do, and I come up with my shortcomings and my confession, I confess to the pastor, as I should do, and receive his absolution. If I walk out of there thinking to myself, well, that's it. I got, you know, at least 99% of them, maybe 100% of the sins name. I would be completely wrong. And I would only be demonstrating my complete blindness. The psalmists reflect on this where, uh, they, where he prays um, to God, forgive me my hidden faults. Why? Because even those sins that we know and feel in our hearts, and we could go on for hours, are but the tip of the iceberg. It's what's visible. What's below the hulking mass, the sins of commission and even worse, omission, sins that we didn't even know were sins, things that we didn't and don't even see, that's all there, hulking underneath the surface. We, and so, um, to judge ourselves uh, is futile, because ourselves is the very problem. You know, and... Um, so even if we even if we look and say, eh, I judge myself, and I you know, and I've got these sins, and I've confessed them, and I, you know, and everything's okay, and I've got a right conscience, we're not thereby exonerated. Even then, we have to have one who is greater than us, who is our true judge, uh, declare us to be righteous, and that's what holy absolution is. That's why we go to confession absolution to receive God's judgment, God's pronouncement, God's verdict of. On account of Christ, you are innocent. Okay, so, uh, yeah, there's a problem. And there's a problem judging then wisdom, too, um, because we are biased against it, especially if it comes, if it's something against or critical of me, I'm going to be very biased against it. Um, And what Solomon is simply pointing out is that's the way of human nature, the way of folly. It's not something to be rejoiced in. It's something to be lamented. And confessed against. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of the fools. And we live in a world in which it's, hey, better to hear your praises being sung. Right? And Solomon's saying that's a lie. Better to hear rebuke. Better to hear rebuke. Okay, so it's counterintuitive. It's upside down. It's un. 21st century American, definitely. Any other thoughts before we move to the next verse? Off we go. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, great imagery, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Okay, so some complex, uh, well, not complex, some um, very good imagery there. Crackling thorns being uh, burnt under the pot to cook whatever's in the pot. This is the laughter of fools. So what is the song of fools? What is the laughter of fools? It's just noise. It's just meaninglessness. This also is vanity. This also is meaninglessness. So, all the world's laughter, all the world's happy clappyism, all the world's uh, self-congratulation, 
patting yourself on the back, the, the uh, culture of, of self-therapy and self-help in which we live, Solomon would frankly condemn as vanity and meaninglessness, the song of fools, a bunch of crackling uh, thorns under a pot, laughter of fools. So that would be Solomon's indictment of, of that view. I don't think Solomon and Oprah would have gotten along. <laughs> okay? So you can kind of see a connection there between verse 5 and verse 6. But now verse 7 launches off in a different way. Surely oppression, and probably a better or more precise word would be extortion. Surely extortion drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Okay, So extortion would be money wrongly taken. A bribe would be money wrongly received. And these things uh, result in madness and corruption. You know, like a postcard for Washington, D.C. That's sort of what this verse is. Surely oppression or extortion drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. All right? You know, you would think that... uh, Well, I don't know that there's that much counterintuitive here. I mean, it's fairly straightforward. You'd think that money solves things. I suppose that's the counterintuitive nature of it, is you'd think that money solves things, and instead it manifests itself amongst men in ways of extortion and bribe that pervert things. It's probably what's in view here. Probably if there's a counterintuitive thread through this verse as well, because there certainly is in the previous verses and in the next verse, would probably be that. Money that should be of help ends up being uh, what causes madness and corruption of the heart. Okay, shoot your hand up if you got thoughts. We're moving rapid fire, can you tell? Yeah, ah, this is fast for me and for Solomon. Okay, so on to verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Right? Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. That has the same sort of counterintuitive nature as it's better to, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Right? It's counterintuitive. Doesn't seem to make sense. Um, Reminds me of that saying, the two happiest days of a man's life are the day he buys his boat and the day he sells it. Solomon says, yeah, and selling it's better. <laughs> he says the end of the thing is better than its beginning. All right, And this wraps up you know, really, really an ongoing theme that we've seen in the previous chapters where... Uh, You know, in the beginning, there's all sorts of vain hope and vanity. And in the end, at least it's honest, you see what it is. It was nothing. So it's better to have the truth with no sugar coating than to have all the sugar coating and optimism and hope just to have it dashed and crushed once again. That would be one way of looking 
at Solomon's wisdom here. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. All right, now the next half, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit, is very similar to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Someone who's patient in spirit is waiting. They're poor. They don't have a choice. To be poor in spirit is a blessing, which is completely counterintuitive. In fact, I think that's probably the best, not that I want to go off on how to read the Beatitudes, but that's one of the best ways to think and read about the Beatitudes is to think and read them as counterintuitive, as the opposite of what the world's Beatitudes are. A poor in spirit, who wants to be poor in spirit? You know, you want to be a a Christian who's poor in spirit or do you want to be a world-renowned theologian? When you, when you jump into a, an Eastern religion, do you want to you know, scrub the floors or do you want to be a great guru sitting up on a mountaintop where people come to see? No one wants to be poor in spirit. Everyone wants to be great in spirit. And so Jesus comes and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So again, it's uh, one of these counterintuitive uh, reversal type motifs that you see at work. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, someone who's proud in spirit, of course, is going to be impatient. That's the nature of pride. When you find an impatient person, you find a, pr- a proud person. I was, uh, I was completely sinless and innocent. Um, completely, I, uh, I don't know how to put this. I was a saint. This was one sin that I did not commit. I was never once impatient. And then I had kids. (laughs) And I realized, oh my gosh, I am so impatient. It's just that I never recognized it in myself before. (laughs) Kids draw that out of you. They draw out your your faults. (laughs) And impatience is, is one of mine. And I learned that by having kids. And then you look back on life and you're like, yeah, I've always been impatient. The only reason I thought I was patient is because there's nothing testing it. You know, it's really easy to think yourself holy when you're not put to the test on that thing, right? You know, and then as soon as you're put to the test, you find out just how much holiness you lack. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like it's like that comment. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but C.S. Lewis says, "You know, I never realized how bad I was until I tried to be good." It's that same kind of thing. We walk around under the illusion. That we're all, you know, on the up and up, you know, not perfect, sinful, not the best, of course. And, and then you're put to the test and you realize, oh my gosh, there's nothing there. And kids do that. So do spouses. So do all the great gifts of God. Isn't that a strange thing? Isn't that a bizarre thing? <laughs> I don't know what to think about it, you know? God says, get married, and, you know, so you do, and there's all this blessing with it, and then there's all this, like, personal cross and trial and you know, self-realization of how, how self-absorbed you are, you know, just with that one other person. And then you sort of, like, you know, you get, like, a year or two into it, and you've mastered marriage. <laughs> and then kids come. <laughs> 
And then it's like the, it's like the second and more extreme crucible because you find all sorts of things out of, not only about yourself, but then about how little you've mastered marriage. Uh, <laughs> all of this happens to you. And all of this is the gift of the Lord. It's such a strange gift. Right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture on the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand... You turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. You can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? 
You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that all those guys talking to you about being great, having a dream destiny, that you are, oh, just the apple of God's eye, that kind of stuff, that they're not telling you the truth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner at $49.95 and Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Uh, joining our crew, by the way, is a great way to support us. It helps us have a good, solid um, foundation month after month so that we can budget properly. And, uh, and of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, 
And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here's the balance of today's lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Uh, so, so this is the way that all of God's gifts are, you know. Is there's, there's a great deal of uh, rebuke and humbling and breaking down and expanding of your person. You know, it's like, it's like it, as a parent, you set up these boundaries of like, oh, I can't do that, I could never do that. And then you find yourself doing it. Some night at 3 a.m., you know, it hit, me, it hit me last night, we've got sick kids at home. And we were going to give him a steam shower. And James refused to eat. And so here we are in the, guest, in the guest bathroom of our house. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. Because we can make that bathroom all full of steam. We're in there. He hadn't eaten. So I'm sitting there. I'm basically stripped down. And I've got, I've got a plate full of mashed potatoes. <laughs> My son is in the bathtub. And I am trying desperately to bribe him to get him to eat mashed potatoes. Genevieve is screaming. And I look up, from, I'm on my knees and I look up, and there's my wife who I knew in college, and I just have this surreal moment of what on earth have we come to? <laughs> it is so weird. So, God has ways of uh, expanding you. You know, and, and I would, you know, if, you, if you're going to draw that line in the sand and say, mm, I could never do that, mm, I could never go that far, be careful, you know, because <laughs> God might take you right there and prove otherwise. That, you know, that verse where uh, God will never give you more than you can handle, yeah. that's just, frankly, a wrong interpretation of that verse. <laughs> that's not how it works. I mean,. If life hasn't taught you that, read the Scriptures. God's people everywhere are getting more than they can handle. Okay? But God doesn't let go of you. That's the thing, you know. All right. Well, so all of this, all of this to say, you know, that uh, it's a stunning and surprising thing that God works out in our lives and very much counterintuitive and very much strange. And so we find ourselves... Uh, realizing the cost of being patient in spirit and poor in spirit. We realize, uh, we realize ourselves being made into these things unwittingly and unintentionally. And here uh, Solomon is lifting that up. It's better to be patient in spirit than proud in spirit. It's better to have rebuke than have uh, songs sung after you. Um, okay. Let's get on to another verse, unless there's comments or questions. Okay, let's get on to another verse. Let's go on to 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Okay. Which is counterintuitive, I think, in this way, that some of the most intelligent folks also have the shortest temper. Right? Because you see people's idiocy and nonsense and you just see it fast and you get bitter and you get grumpy about it real quick, right? Uh, you get snappy about it. Um, and maybe you start to think that everyone else's ideas are dumb and your ideas are the only ones that are right. Okay, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom, not of the wise, 
not of the intelligent, but of fools. So that's the counterintuitive thing, because in our experience of the world, when you're intelligent, you become impatient, you become angry. And Solomon is calling that out and saying, no, that's not intelligence. It's not a mark of an intelligent man. It's, in fact, the mark of a fool, which is a little stunning. You know, it's a little stunning. A wise and intelligent man, then, to paint it the opposite way, would be patient, not quick to anger, slow to anger. Yes, I see a hand. Can we uh, get a mic over here, please? Thanks, David. Uh, right over here. Where, 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 where? Hand, hand, hand. There. I remember a while back the first line, love is patient, and we grow up hearing it, and it struck me one day. What an, I thought, odd word to describe love. Yeah, as patient. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a whole class in itself, the difference between biblical love and what love is called today. Yeah. yeah. I think that would be a fun study of uh, uh, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, and his, his idea of love and the biblical idea of love, namely love that's patient rather than impulsive. Isn't patience also a, um, an expression of faith? Mm-hmm. That that you know you don't have to interject your prideful self into a situation. That you can be patient and let it let it unfold. Yes, patience and endurance is another key word that I think has a overlapping semantic domain, and that. Uh, Patience and endurance are continually held up throughout the Scriptures, but maybe especially in the New Testament as things we must strive to. Uh, because, which you think, you know, you could sort of think, endure, that's just passive, that's just sitting back, that's just, well, not in our experience, is it? You know, in the experience of this world, enduring sometimes is clinging with all your life and holding God to His promises and getting... Uh, swooshed around in the washing machine of the, of the tide and popping back up, spitting the salt water out of your mouth, taking a deep breath and getting ready for what comes next. You know, that's, endurance is plenty active. And you're right. It's, uh, it's an aspect of um, endurance and patience are aspects of uh, faith, hope, and love, I would say. Okay. Let's march on. <clears throat> Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these days? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. (laughs) Which is a polite way of saying, that's dumb. Okay, Why, why can't it be like those good old days? Way back when, when everything was perfect. Well, in the first place, that's dumb because those days never existed. You know, if you go back to those golden days of yore, they aren't very golden. You know, they aren't very great. Um, let me see if I've got a... Yeah, I've got a comment on this. Here's what uh, Bolhagen in the Concordia Commentary says. There is nothing new under the sun. That's verse uh, chapter 1, verse 9. What was, what is, and what will be in this sinful world are all part of the vicious circle... And they all participate in the same rottenness. 
hopes and promises about the future, the dreams that everything will be better for the next generation, do not correspond with reality. Future days will be just as rough as the present or even rougher as the end draws near. Okay, so the idea that Bullhagen's trying to get at is the former days aren't any better because the whole, the whole thing's a cycle. The whole thing's just a vicious cycle. Even if they're better in some ways, they're worse in others, etc. Okay? And what this does, of course, is cramps the whole American optimism, Western optimistic style. That's what it does. Very counter that. We, uh, you know, we sort of lost the idea of modernity that we're going to have a war that ends all wars, that we're going to build a civilized Western utopia. We, we've gotten rid of that idea. Nonetheless, we still, in a different way, with postmodernity, press on toward we'll get more and more liberation, more and more. Uh, Oppressors will be overthrown and hopefully, finally, eventually we'll march on to better and better and better and better things. Will we ever get to utopia? No, we won't. That's a silly modern idea. But nonetheless, we will be progressive. We will have progress and march on. And Solomon, as we've seen in so many places here, also says, nah, nah. Okay, thoughts? And you can see how these verses really are fairly disconnected, other than maybe their counterintuitive nature. Verse 11, ESV says wisdom is good with an inheritance. Another reading of this would be wisdom is as good as an inheritance. Okay? doesn't matter. The idea is these verses are going to praise wisdom. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Okay, again, wisdom is the advantage here. For the protection of wisdom, that's the protection that wisdom offers or affords a person, is like the protection of money. Which already in Ecclesiastes we've seen his statements about money. So we understand that what he's going to say here is you know, minimal, minimal, relative. Okay, Because money isn't the end-all, be-all, neither is wisdom. Nonetheless... There are advantages both to money and wisdom. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Okay? So, you don't have money. You might be better off to get some wisdom. Because in the same way that, that money can protect you, wisdom can protect you too. That's the point of these verses. All right? And yet again, not to lose sight of the whole big project, neither wisdom nor money nor the accumulation of either is ultimately the meaning of life. They still fall into the category of vanity, meaninglessness. The all is vanity. So these things are good. Use them, love them, cherish them, etc. But don't mistake them for the answer to your deepest longings. All right, on to verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? 
The answer, of course, is no one. And we've heard this back all the way back in chapter 1, the same sort of idea. Okay? What God makes crooked, no one can make straight. Now that seems like, duh, okay? But it's not that way. Because human beings always think that we can do what? Heal the world, make it a better place. Um, Yeah, we think we can fix the world. Let's fix world hunger. It ain't ever going to happen. Because why? God has subjected the world to futility. The poor you will always have with you, Jesus says. Why? Here's the stunning, startling fact. Because God has made it so. It's part of the curse. Why, Why can't we stop world hunger? Why can't we end all diseases? Why can't we clothe every child? Why can't we fix these great big things? Why can't we straighten them out? Because God is the one who's made them crooked. It's Romans 8. He's subjected the world to futility. Um, You can go back to Genesis 3 where he does the curse and look carefully at those. It's he who subjects it all to suffering and death as a consequence and just consequence of our sin. So that God is not the author of sin, but he is most certainly the author of the punishment and consequence of sin. Okay? So consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked, is again an indictment of humanity and all of our toils. So whether it's the human toil of religion, the human toil of philanthropy, the human toil of greatness, the human toil of wisdom or of pleasure, ultimately these lead to dead ends of futility because God is the one who has subjected them to futility and made these ways crooked. We can't make them straight. We can't make them work out. Okay? And again, as we'll see Solomon get to, there's one great big proof to all of this. Death. You know? As soon as you say, well, I can do a whole lot. Okay? Stop yourself from dying. And you can't do a whole lot. If you can't even keep yourself alive, you can't do a whole lot, can you? Okay, so death we're going to see, and we have seen all the way through, is sort of that nail in the coffin on the whole argument of human progress or what human beings can do or what our toils ultimately amount to. Death makes nothing of it all. So then when Christ comes, He undoes death and that's the linchpin then to the creation of a new world. You know, Solomon's world is the world under the S-U-N Christ rises from the dead. We have the breaking of death, the breaking of futility, the breaking of meaninglessness, the dawn of a new world under the S-O-N. We've talked about that before. Now, I saw a hand or two, so let's pause and grab those. So do we also see that idea of... um God subjecting the world to futility in this morning's 
uh, epistle reading and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, the this being all circumstances are the will of God in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, all circumstances, whether good or bad. And that's going to be the next line. That's, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, verse 14 in Ecclesiastes is going to express something very similar. Um, I'm thumbing over to Romans. Yeah, in Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. For whose sake? For God's sake we are being killed all the day long. You see, it's an accusation and in the mouths of uh, the Old Testament saints. For your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Regarded by who? By God. Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And to your point, in is the key word. In all circumstances, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, namely Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, So it's not by getting outside of them, but it's in them. And that's what we're going to see reflected in verse 14 of Ecclesiastes. Jennifer? So, clearly understanding that there's a futility to trying to solve any great problem, like, you know, we're going to end world hunger, etc. There's still exhortation for us to take action for those things, though. And then, could you kind of discuss striking a balance there with an understanding that there's a certain level of futility, and that's not the end game. We all die. So, in, in essence, if you're feeding everybody, you're just prolonging their life, right? And they're all going to die anyway. Yeah. But there's still an exhortation for us to take certain action. Would you speak to that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't mean to contradict that other than in the way of Ecclesiastes, it's as you pointed out, yeah, give, do good for other folks, right? Help them out. Feed the hungry, clothe the poor, but realize that you're never going to solve the problem. And in the end, your life is futile, and all the people that you're pouring your life out for, their lives are futile as well. Now, what is that doing? That is cutting down the great human idol of philanthropy. The great human idol that I, a human being, with or without God can pour myself out and make my life meaningful, save my life from vanity and meaninglessness by pouring my life out for others. Right? Because if all of human life is just water on the ground, well, then I'm going to take my life and I'm not going to pour it on the ground. I'm going to pour it into other people. And then as Solomon points out, yeah, and they're going to take that and pour it on the ground. Or they're going to pour it on other people who pour it on the ground. Okay, so the whole thing's vain. Now, Solomon, Ecclesiastes, would not say, thus don't do it. That's never the message, you know. The message of of Ecclesiastes is never, 
well, whether you're wise or a fool, you both end up dead, so hey, you may as well be a fool. Ecclesiastes never says, be wise. Do good. Sacrifice yourself. Okay? Just realize that it's all meaningless. Now, the other side is Jesus, okay? who is something new under the sun. He is the one thing that Ecclesiastes cannot account for because he comes from outside of the purview of the S-U-N, the sun. Okay? He comes down from heaven into this cosmos, into this world, and he is something new. God in human flesh is something new. It is the dawn of a new creation. In Job, the angels are depicted as singing as God is speaking creation into existence. The angels are gathered around in mass singing. And you know what other time in Scripture the angels are seen gathered in mass singing? The birth of Christ. Because why? It's the dawn of a new creation. The new creation and the linchpin of that is God in human flesh. The new Adam. The old Adam who is mere man, but the new Adam who is God in human flesh. Everything changes. It's a brand new world. Now in that brand new world that's breaking in, that's invading, um, it's like the old world, the fallen world, the world of Ecclesiastes under the S-U-N is being invaded by another world. It's It's being eclipsed by another world. And the point, the spear point of that invasion, if you will, is the incarnation of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And that's the spear point of the invasion. Because why? That's the breaking of all rules of the old order. That God would become man. That death would be undone. Okay. It's, the, it's the breaking of every rule in the old world order. And so, in the new world, Christ is the new man. And He comes... And now fascinating because, and here's where the exhortation comes in, okay? Because it's not meaningless. As Revelation says, the works of the saints follow them, namely into eternity, namely into the new heavens and the new earth, which is one of the great mysteries and one of the great excitements about doing good works. They follow us, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They have to be that. And in some way that we can't even begin to comprehend, there's a continuity between what we do here and now and the new heavens and the new earth. Our works follow us. Just as there's a continuity between the old world, this one, okay, and the new heavens and the new earth, so also the works done here and now that will be in continuity and those works will be somehow immortalized and eternalized in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, what good works? All of them. But this is why Jesus says, even a cup of cold water given to a little one, right? You will by no means lose your reward. So that's the other world, the world under the new Adam that is Christ, you realize that the smallest thing has significance, everlasting meaning, everlasting purpose. And that's the great thrill. So the joy, I think, of of embracing Ecclesiastes and embracing what our Lord Jesus teaches, for example, in giving a cup of cold water, or what our Lord Jesus teaches, how can we even begin to talk about that mystery in Matthew 25, where we discover that whatever we do to the least of these, our brothers, we do 
unto Him, right? We walk in both these worlds. And so you look at the guy on the street who's, you know, uh, probably an addict, probably out of his mind, and he wants $5. And you think, if I give him my $5, I'm just going to be throwing that money away. And maybe he's going to spend it on alcohol. Now, the Bible itself, I'll preach this sermon one day, says, yeah, and wouldn't you do the same? So why are you so worried about him going and doing what you would do in the same situation? Right? So, in the way of Ecclesiastes, you look and you say, what do I do? I give that $5, what's going ha- to happen? Nothing. Meaningless. Okay, thank you, Ecclesiastes. Now our Lord Jesus... Whatever you, you know, even giving a cup of cold water, now it's in his name, but even if you give a cup of cold water, you give that $5 if you go buy a sandwich, you don't lose your reward. There's meaning to it, eternal and everlasting meaning. So you see the paradox. You see, walking in these two worlds, we're free to see it in both ways, under the S-U-N and under the S-O-N. All right, Jack, you're trying to get a word in edgewise here. No, I just wanted to remind you, uh, when you're giving potatoes in the tub, see what you just said. What's that now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my. Um, there's a, a thought that's been whirling around in my head for ever since we started this, and and that is, um, it comes from art, it comes from uh, the left side and the right side of the brain, learning to, to look with the left side and learning to look with the right side. When you draw from the right side of the brain, you're drawing the outside, you're defining a shape by what's outside when you draw from the left side, you're defining the shape by what's inside. And it seems to me that the Old Testament is defining God <clears throat> by what's going on outside. In other words, it's all these events and all of these things that are in the world that are defining God. In the New Testament, and with Jesus, we're looking at what's inside and what the essence of God is. And, and, uh, and it's all the things that we, that we think of. And we can also say that about ourselves, that either we define ourselves by everything that goes on around us, and that's where we put our treasure, so to speak, or we can define ourselves by what's in our hearts and what's in our minds and what is um, truly important to us, and that is more, much more solid. And it's, it's just, I don't know if it helps anybody with anything but it just <laughs> it, it's just it's a, a thought that has been there that I wanted to share yeah thank you thank you for that you were talking about the good deeds of um, giving and helping people in hunger 
and how at one on one side it's futile, but on the other side our works follow us in to heaven. How weighty that is! Could you speak to the same way about wisdom? How it it's talked about in Proverbs about you know being as precious as jewels, and we should seek after it. And the other side of wisdom too. In, in Ecclesiastes it says how it's futile, but in Proverbs it gives a different side to that. Could you speak to that? Yeah. Again, it's it's important when talking about wisdom to uh, make a distinction between wisdom that is wisdom of the cross, wisdom of God's word, wisdom of his self-revelation. That's different. That wisdom is always great. That wisdom is never meaningless or futile. Um, The wisdom that Solomon has in mind in Ecclesiastes and often in Proverbs, though I'm not sure always, um, is simply the wisdom of where it doesn't require the revelation of God or the word of God. It simply requires brutal honesty on the part of a human being. To look the world in the eye and say what it is. To open your eyes under the sun and say what it actually is instead of say the lie that you're told. You know what I mean? Um, You know, your parents tell you, uh, you can be whatever you want when you grow up. Well, that's not true. I don't have the genes to be a basketball player or the brains to be a rocket scientist, right? Um, it's a lie. It's a lie. Okay, it's a fib. So there are all sorts of fibs that we tell ourselves as a human race. And the wisdom in Ecclesiastes is a wisdom to see through the lies and to cut to the chase and just name it as it actually is. As Luther would say to be a theologian of the cross. Now, even if you have that wisdom, so what? That's the fascinating thing, is that even Solomon's own book, and we're going to get there, I guess, in three weeks, um, but even Solomon's own book, you see him start to kind of undercut it or put a limit on it. Why? Within his own framework, under the sun, Ecclesiastes is just one more set of wisdom. It's better than folly, But Ecclesiastes itself has to fall under the condemnation of everything else and ultimately itself be vain. So that's the way that wisdom is uh, better than folly. You'd rather be wise than a fool. And yet, with all your wisdom, you're still going to die and it's still not going to mean anything. That's Ecclesiastes. Okay. When Christ is the wisdom of God incarnate, um, because wisdom is a uh, a feminine uh, noun, you find it in uh, in Proverbs in chapters one through nine. You find two women, story of two women, the treacherous woman and the other woman whose wisdom, Sophia, the and. Who you find out is Sophia uh, is actually who we would, what we would call Christ, the wisdom of God, okay? because it's a feminine noun, it's played on as a woman, etc. But the wisdom of God, the word of God, the meaning of God, the logos is Christ. Okay? So that's ultimate wisdom as opposed to uh, Idolatry, lies, foolishness, entrapment, which is the treacherous woman. Okay, and I bring that up by way of cliffhanger because we're going to get to that section uh, coming up at the end of chapter 7.
Um, it's about the treacherous woman, right? The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. And if you're a fan of Led Zeppelin, you know, then, or a lot of blues music, <laughs> lamenting the treacherous woman, then have that playing in your mind as you read this section. And we'll note carefully that it's not saying all women, but namely this woman. Um, the antithesis of wisdom. So, outside of Ecclesiastes, wisdom is Christ. And where Ecclesiastes laments that all wisdom is in the end vain, it doesn't have in view Christ as the wisdom of God. That's the point I'm making. I'm thoroughly out of time. The Lord be with you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is by Carrie's death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>